This is Queer Histories, Queer Futures, presented by Last Call, a podcast about queer resistance in New Orleans and the people behind the movement. I'm Free For All. Lane's out this week. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this special bonus edition of Queer Histories, Queer Futures. I'm super excited to share this week's piece with y'all. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to invite you to our season two rap party. May 31st from 7 to 10 at Catapult. That's 609 St. Ferdinand in New Orleans. We will have food. There will be listening booths where you can listen to episodes of the season. There's a cash bar and trivia based on the season for all you super fans out there to prove your devotion. We will also be unveiling the first edition of the Last Call mixtape featuring music from the season and by some of the season's contributors. There's a link to this event in the notes for today's show. So you can click that and find any more information you might need there. It's a free event, and we hope to see you there. So the piece you're about to hear was produced back in 2017 by Last Call co-founder Bonnie Gable and myself for a project for alternate routes called Creating Place, the Art of Equitable Community Building which was a series about artists creating space for their communities with their work. In this piece, we talk about the origins of Last Call, the process of creating the podcast, and the making of alleged lesbian activities, as well as navigating creating equity in a small organization. You'll hear from Rachel Lee, Aaron Roussel, Chanel Mills, Indy Mitchell, Bonnie Gable, and me. Enjoy! Everybody would dance together. That was the fun part about it. On the, the Jude box would come something like, what is it, Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive? And everybody would just get into it and sing along and dance. And, and you knew they were, they were singing something beyond just a good beat. It's like, I'm in a lesbian bar, damn it. I'm a lesbian woman. And I'm going to sing out loud, and I'm going to survive, honey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flourish. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to be out and loud and proud. I'm here. You can't bug me. You're listening to Creating Place, a podcast from Alternate Roots about current practices and creative placemaking in the U.S. South. I'm Bonnie Gable. And I'm Free For All. We've been bringing you stories in this series about artists whose work inspires us and shows us a wide variety of approaches to placemaking. And this time, we're doing something a little weird, for us anyway. Today, we are going to be talking about Last Call, which is a New Orleans organization with which we are quite intimately connected. Right, Bonnie? 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, Last Call is an organization that I co-founded a few years ago, and I currently serve as the co-director of. By the way, the voice you heard at the top of this episode was Liz Simone, one of the wonderful folks who participated in our first project, the New Orleans Dyke Bar History Project. And Free, you have been working on our podcast since its birth. So, naturally, we know how to talk about this. We do. So, uh, <laughs> let's let someone else give it a try. Like, uh... mm-hmm. My name is Indy Mitchell. I'm a performance-based artist. I mostly work in like theater and dance. Indy is currently the co-director of Last Call, the organization, and also is the co-director of Alleged Lesbian Activities, which is the full-length play that we made. Last Call is... It's a community of itself in ways. Um, We're a community of artists, um, of organizers, of archivists, of many ages of queer people coming together to document and interpret stories of the past, um, creatively interpret stories of the past. It's a it's a a big project that has many different legs. We have a whole a podcast series that you can find online. We've conducted uh, almost thirty interviews to this date, most of which were surrounding the disappearing of dyke bars um, in New Orleans, and now we're starting to shift and do more interviews with the larger queer community um, around different stories of resistance during the eighties and nineties. Uh, and then we make performances, we make things, there's creative interpretation. So we've created and are currently in the, in the process of producing and touring um, a full-length play called Alleged Lesbian Activities. We have a lot going on. Um, and it's a lot of people who contribute little and large amounts of energy. Um, and I think that's like part of what keeps the work going and what continues to fuel the work is the commitment to the community and making sure everyone has a voice, has a say, has a place. Um. Yeah, I recounted our collaborators for the September version of Alleged Lesbian Activities again the other day. It was 52 people. Yeah. That's remarkable. Not to mention the dozens of people who participate in workshops, who come to our parties and events and listen to the podcast. This whole thing started, though, with just a few curious queers. That was me, Ace, and this fantastic person, Rachel Lee. So last call started about five years ago at this point through a conversation with two incredible women who I call my dyke fairy godmothers named Mary Capps and Alda Talley. They lived in New Orleans for many, many years and were instrumental organizers and community builders in lesbian communities in New Orleans. And they now live out in Mississippi and have the youngers, as they call us, come out and visit with them. We were visiting and they were telling stories about their time at a place called Charlene's. And I had to like pause the conversation and say, wait, where? It was a lesbian bar that I had never even heard of. I'm a transplant to New Orleans. I moved here about nine years ago. And in the time that I've lived here, there's only been one lesbian bar that I ever went to called Ruby Fruit Jungle. 
that was briefly open in my time here and closed down a couple of years ago. And they were telling the story about this place that was open for 30 years where Alda was a bartender and had just mountains of stories. We were babies and scared shitless, but we would get all dressed up like we were going out on Saturday night. Um, and we would just like drive by. We might park across Elysian Fields, which was um, a very, very wide street with a neutral ground, so you could park on the other side and just kind of watch from a distance. And we did that several times. And I was so fascinated and, and drawn into that and curious about where these spaces had gone to, um, why they weren't around anymore, um, and what was lost in not having them. Okay, so that's one seed of the dream that built Last Call, but the other was a drag king musical. I feel like that's a really long story. <laughs> um, the real important thing there is like we were collaborators who had worked together before and really wanted to work together again, but this time on something fabulous and a part of our community. And that idea kind of started to meld with these stories that we had heard about this mythical seeming lesbian bar. So we went out to talk to Mary and Alda about it again and asked if we could interview them about it. And as soon as we let a hint drop that we wanted to talk to some people about this place, they tapped into the lesbian web <laughs> of their generations of connections and, and immediately we had 30 phone numbers that we were expected to follow up with promptly and so we quickly realized that this wasn't just going to be like a play that it was a conversation so the three of us rachel ace and i sat down and had a conversation over breakfast in rachel's kitchen um, and we talked about everything about queer representation and queer spaces and a deep longing that we all had to be in space with other queer women and queer people um, and have places to go and, and meet folks. And at the end of that conversation, we turned to each other and we're like, this feels great to be having this conversation. This is what we want this project, whatever it's going to be, to feel like. How would you describe that feeling that Rachel was talking about? I think it was just about being together. It was like a feeling of not being alone, of sharing space and creative energy and organizing impulses with people who were like me, which is something that I had found up to that point really difficult to, to locate, to find. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that is a sentiment that's been shared by a lot of people because the project has grown immensely uh, over the last couple of years. Do you think that that initial feeling has been retained for you? Totally. I mean, I think as this project shifts and expands that the initial kind of warm, fuzzy feelings that you're talking about yeah. have stayed, but also it's 
there's been other feelings of like pushing and leaning into things that are difficult that I think are also really important. Um, and so, no, I do not think this project has been entirely warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that feeling of not being alone is something that has been at the center of the work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Not being alone individually and in different struggles and also not being alone creatively. We were focused on that community epicenter, Mm -hmm. those bars Mm -hmm. that were lost. And we wanted to see what we could do to get the feeling of them back without actually building a bar. Um, So Indy kind of sums up the loss this way. I don't have a, a true dyke bar experience as I'm like 29 and from Virginia and went to like a school in the in the Northeast and like not a major city or anything like that um, and from like more rural areas. So I've never experienced like dyke bars for real for real. I feel like we've lost, you know, space to gather. We've lost like physical space that our community can like center around or that community can gather. Yeah, we've lost like another place to like organize. I mean, based on like conversations that I've had with elders and or the interviews that I've heard, I feel like, uh, I almost have like a sense of purpose or maybe it's like a sense of belonging. Like that's why I hear people say, like that's where they belong. That's where they could be themselves. Paula Kilburn was interviewed early in the process. Here's how she described the feeling of the bars. It gave me a chance if I worked Monday through Friday and I wore that that mask and those clothes that didn't really fit me. But on Friday nights and Saturday nights, I could be me. I could put on my blue jeans, put on my boots, and I could go out and look as butch as I wanted to look. But there's also a, a really concrete and practical benefit to these places. We've lost kind of like this alternative economy, you know, like dyke bars were a place where, you know, they were generally owned by dykes and like patroned by dykes and people spent their money there and people made money there, people worked there. And I feel like it was like one of uh, one of few careers, there. I say, you could like have as a out queer person in like the 70s and the 80s and stuff, even earlier. I think about Charlene, you know, who owned Charlene's. That was the <laughs> longest running dive bar um, and was open for like 20 years. She opened Charlene's after she was fired for her job because she was arrested in a raid and her name was published in the paper and she worked for a government contractor and they fired her and so she opened this bar and this bar was a place where like Alda who was one of the inspirations for the piece where Alda went and got a job when she had to quit her teaching job because she started seeing students of hers at bars and she was scared that she was going to get outed. There have always been queer spaces in New Orleans, but since the demise of the dyke bar, they have become increasingly private, like in backyards, or informal, like in a neighborhood bar that happens to be queer friendly. And that's great, of course. Any place where queer folks are gathering and creating or strengthening community is great. But there is a consequence to that as well. There aren't as many opportunities to come together across 
generations and across age and that has to do with the nature of the chosen family that we talk about a lot our chosen family is often not always but often people our own age because we find each other in the ways that we're alienated from families of origin find people in our peer group who become like family and don't always get to hear the stories of our elders who we don't have some physical place to go and find. Perhaps this is a good time to say that the New Orleans dyke bar scene between 1970-ish and 1999 was huge. There was Brady's, Les Pierre's, Pinstripes and Lace, Charlene's, Pinot's, The Other Side, Miss Dixie's, and a bunch more that I'm not naming right now. So some people went to all the bars. There were like circuits in different parts of the city. But some people went to just one. Erin Roussel is a last call collaborator who wears many hats. She points out that now, as ever, the scenes are pretty clear and distinct and echo the racial and social issues we still face as a society. Neighborhoods are really distinct from one another. So I think that's something that um, we also learned about when we went through the interviews of like, okay, we want to hold an event here where it's going to draw this, these people. If we hold an event at MAGS today, it's not going to draw as, multi, as multiracial of a crowd as if we hold it in another neighborhood at another bar owned by a different person. We attempt to have lots of social events and stuff, and the first few years of this project was completely funded by the community. We were only really functioning off of the money we were raising at these social events. I think for me, one of the most important roots of this project was that before we had a single grant, we had raised thousands of dollars from our community. And so the first layer of people that we were accountable to, who we promised we're gonna tell these stories and we're gonna tell them thoughtfully and responsibly, were the people whose stories we were telling in the like broader circles of queer and specifically lesbian communities. We're not gonna gloss over the challenges and we're not gonna look away from the ways that racism and white supremacy have shaped our community and our community spaces. The points of intersection are so important and I feel like they can be like lost or forgotten all for the sake of like unifying under some like queer umbrella um, as if like you know my experiences as a queer person is the same as your experiences as a queer person it's the same as like a black trans woman experiences as a queer person like they are not you know synonymous and maybe we have like points of parallel ways that we like can relate or like see each other's like you know, existence and history in our own lives. And um, it's important for us to remember that the way that the world functions, it's very specific to like who you are and what other points, um, what other markers of your identity like that make you, you. Attempting to amplify the similarities without looking at the differences isn't community building. Like, the attempt to say, like, we're the same, it's, like, such a product, I feel like, of the way that our society functions in general, and it's a product of white supremacy, I think, and capitalism, and patriarchy. 
because we were having social gatherings throughout, it felt like things were moving, things were happening, but there wasn't a deadline to have a show, to have a product on a specific date. There was a commitment to moving slowly and building relationships and really thinking about who was going to tell these stories ultimately and how they were going to get told. The best practice for me was holding space for like ever increasing circles of people to get involved and to be part of the storytelling um, either by sharing their own stories or creating work based on the stories. We had like multiple rounds of creative workshops where a mix of professional artists and just interested folks came and played and just got to listen to some of the stories from the interviews and listen to those and play around with them creatively and generate ideas some of which years later ended up in the show but that didn't feel any kind of pressure so it was just an opportunity to listen and play and think about new questions and ask what voices are missing um who do we still need to talk to Workshops and open calls were and are a way that we reach out to the community to invite people into the room that we don't already know. That's how Indie got involved originally was through a workshop performance and free. You and I knew each other socially and you knew Rachel, but you came to one of our early workshops in 2014. Correct. And then you and Rachel ended up making the first season of the Last Call podcast together with Peter Bowling. That's right. (laughs) The need for the podcast became apparent when we saw just how many stories there were and um, how beautiful the voices were that we were hearing and how limiting it would be to only share those stories in one format. So I think I had made the suggestion in that workshop and Rachel had already thought of it. We were both kind of like podcast nerds, like we were listening to a lot of podcasts at the time. And so it sort of just made sense. And um, we thought it would be good promo for everything else that folks were doing with the archives and the interviews. And um, I had never made a podcast before, neither had Rachel, but (laughs) we were addicted to podcasts. We thought we could learn and so we did we sort of just jumped in and our first piece was about coming out stories and then we did pieces about race and marriage and we highlighted a few of the bars my training is in music so I scored all the pieces as well with the help of Peter Bowling he also contributed in mixing the episodes at that point and I was paid for all that yeah I 
That's an ethic that we had from the beginning. I mean, we had no idea how to make it happen, I think, when we first started, but we believed that you shouldn't ask artists to do things without paying them. So even those really early workshops, we were like, okay, we're just gonna give everybody $50 to come hang out with us for the day. Which doesn't mean that we were paying people what they should be paid. And I think that that's another conversation um, that got opened up as we continued on and that I think that I think that you were really instrumental in pushing along and that that was a really positive thing was kind of saying like, okay, so if people aren't being paid a wage that is in any, in any way even approximating, <laughs> compensating them for their time, then it's still basically volunteer work. And if the project is being run on volunteer work, then only certain people can do that. And that became a part of how we thought about payment is that it's a, it's, it's a part of equity. And you've, you've done a lot, all of you, to create these avenues through which people can be paid. Like all the workshops that you were mentioning, people get paid for participating, um, which provides an incentive for learning and training, um, as well as for producing work in a variety of mediums from the podcast to the play to whatever else we might end up making in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it's I think you're right. It has enabled Last Call to cultivate a very broad collective. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely trying. And uh, the process of making and doing the play Alleged Lesbian Activities, that was a process by which we were trying and testing um, the model of how we make work. Mm -hmm. um, I think a major challenge that my community faces is access to resources, access to wealth, access to stability. Um, in ways like access to comfort and safety, which I think is all like kind of wrapped up um, in, in each other. Um, like we, my, I feel like my community, when I say my community, I'm like specifically talking about queer and trans, like black people, especially like, like younger folks under 30. I feel like where we're positioned in society, you know, it, we're not positioned in a place in society that that's like made to function, to sustain, to survive, to actually like live comfortable, like um, full lives in ways. And I think there's a lot of like systemic things placed against us. Um, and I feel like the work that we do with Last Call, it provides like a track for people. It's like a, an economic opportunity and it's a... I feel like it's an opportunity for people to, or for my community to like come together and figure out how do we like work and function together? How do we hold each other? Um, how do we like hold space for each other to, <laughs> to exist and to heal? You know, I feel like there's like, yeah, it feels like, it feels like there's like ways that we're trying to intentionally like hold people, hold our community, hold our collaborators. Um, of like all different intersecting identities, um, both like emotionally um, and like spiritually and financially. Like we work really hard not to ask people to do things for us for free anymore. <laughs> I sometimes think about it as like attempting to create 
alternate microeconomy mm. <laughs> that doesn't exist outside of capitalism, like doesn't pretend like capitalism doesn't exist because we totally use capitalism. We like pay people money to do work, but that also doesn't act like capitalism is the only part of the economy that like takes into account emotional labor, takes into account caretaking, all of these other things. And so it's creating this alternate economy where we're doing these things for each other in ways that both interface with capitalism and money in ways that don't. Mm -hmm. That can fill in when like capitalism is failing our community. Mm -hmm. As it will continue to fail our community because it's designed that way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Alleged Lesbian Activities is the first full-length production that this collective Last Call has created. It's a play about the fictional Last Dive Bar in New Orleans that's about to close. It's a musical of sorts. Uh, it pulls from a lot of different, different ways of performing. Um, I'm Nell Mills and I am a writer and an educator here in New Orleans. I teach creative writing and I write both plays and fiction and some nonfiction as well. Alleged Lesbian Activities, it's a play that now has had like three different lives and iterations and with those three different lives and iterations there have been dozens and dozens of hands in each one of those creations. When I think of my work on alleged lesbian activities and just alleged lesbian activities in general, I think it's collaborative. Like it's one of the most like collaborative things, pieces that I've ever worked on or had my hand in. Um, there's so many different elements, it's so multi-layered, like there's movement in it, there's playwriting, there's, mu there's music, both like original and like recorded and there's just a lot of different elements in it um, and so I think it's not difficult to look at the piece and to see that it's coming from a collective, it's coming from a community, it's coming from many different places. The group felt pretty strongly that if we were interested in queer liberation, that we couldn't ignore systemic inequalities, like we couldn't ignore the structures of racism, mm -hmm. we weren't ignoring the structures of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And so, we were attempting to explore the ways in which racism and gentrification were at work within the queer community mm -hmm. and were affecting how these spaces um, opened and closed. Mm -hmm. I know for me individually, one of the challenges that I wanted to address and head and like face because obviously there's like not solving it in a theater piece, um, but like just address is. The, the complications of being like a black queer um, person now when so much of what is immediately thought of as queer when you like conjure that picture in your mind is like a bunch of like white kids like at pride like yeah it's a space where like we're not like black and brown people like aren't seen so Frankie's the bar in which the play takes place 
is the fictional Last Dyke Bar in New Orleans, which is also a historically black queer bar. So we modeled it after some of the other his, the other black lesbian bars that did exist in New Orleans in the 70s and 80s. We think about Les Pierres and Pinstripes and Lace as examples of those. And at the bar, run by Frankie, <laughs> there's a cabaret being hosted by MC Privacy, who's a white MC. And that cabaret is bringing white patrons into this historically black lesbian bar. Mm-hmm. So especially with Frankie and privacy and just like in general of like the regulars at the bar versus the crowd that the cabaret brought in, like that to me was just kind of like, I mean, it was literally pulled from almost reality. And so, this one elder in particular, who I won't call her out, um, but she she's one of like the OG elders. I mean, I guess they're all OGs technically, but <laughs> she's one of the like oh OG elders. Um, and she like she's been with the with alleged activities last call from the very beginning, way before I even like knew that it was a thing that existed in this world. And she she had questions. Like she was like, I did not realize that. It was like a black dyke bar until the middle of the piece. And at first I wondered like why it had to be a black dyke bar. And then I understood toward the end like why it had to be a black dyke bar and how now now the way that like black and brown like queer and trans people feel as far as like not having space, not being seen or being too visible. Um, by the wrong people, that is kind of akin to how the queer elders felt in the 60s or se- in the 70s, not to erase the black and brown, like, queer and trans folks that were living Definitely back then, because, like, that's, like, 10 times as much, and it wasn't until later that we were able to, like, collect more of those um, oral histories. For her to sit with the story the whole time and to, like, allow herself to understand it and allow herself to like be changed that's all any good writing is because your job as the writer is to show people something that they've seen all the time every day and not question and make them see it in a different way and like question it and I appreciated it because I definitely walked the line a lot as I was writing of like how much do I have my own agency and how much do I need to remember that I'm actually telling other people's stories um, and wanting to do right by them, so. Like, I, as a, as, I keep saying it, I feel like an asshole, as a writer, <laughs> um, but as a writer, um, I think a lot about, like, who has the right to tell what stories and like how to tell stories and you know sometimes I'll think oh I I need to tell this story that's not like my story to tell and it's and so it's it's something very I guess particular and specific and super intentional to go to the people to go to like who you are writing the story about and literally having them tell you the story Doing the play for ALA was one of the hardest projects I worked on last year because 
all the time when I'm writing, I always feel like a million people and energies and ancestors like around me on my shoulders. And in this in particular, I felt all of those people and ancestors and energies. And then literally, literally there were the people like around me as well who are, who were physically there for the story. So I think too, like, one of my biggest takeaways with Last Call that I would hope as like artist in the South making work about people, particularly artists in the South who are not from here, are not from the South, educated at a fancy Northeast school, like you have to like actually go and talk to the people and get their stories and get their permissions before you just go and like write them. That's the difference between like empowerment and like total disempowerment of like, you don't know me, you just didn't even, you didn't even try. Like the interviews remain like the locus of like all of the work that Last Call, like alleged lesbian activities, all of that like branches out of. And um, I think that that's why the work remains so like powerful and remains so like, like it can hit so many different people. I think what you're saying is really right. I think I felt that too. Like I have collaborators who aren't in the room. They're like people who we call on the phone or who come and see the work and they're not there, but they're so present through their voices and through their energies. It's like the way that we go back and check with the person whose interview it was before we like publish or put anything out there that has their story in it or that removes their story from it, that we're like in a collaborative relationship with the people who we interviewed. It isn't like some documentary theater where you kind of like get the interviews and then you go make the play and like they come and see the play, but they didn't get to see it step by step along the way. So they don't actually get to have feedback. We like try, have tried to provide opportunities for meaningful feedback mm -hmm. from interviewees. When I think of like, how do I define the collaborative process for us, I would say it's like, it varied. <laughs> it was like changing. Um, it depended on who was in the room and what we were working towards. And like, you know, people like worked really hard and, and put a lot of like thought, intention and like care into the development of their characters. And, and for like certain phases, you know, like I feel like, you know, actors and performers have like more ownership over their characters than like other phases of the show. So our performers were all co-creators and a lot of people really created their own character based on interview material, but also based on who they were. And that's really important because queer folks, especially gender queer folks or folks who are very genderful or who have different gender expressions often are forced to fit themselves into really typical normative gender roles. And so we thought of this process as an opportunity for people to create characters that really fit their own gender identities. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't mean that everybody chose a character that fit their own gender identities, but a lot of people did. Mm -hmm. To be like an artist person that's not having to like shy away from your queer identity or not having to like hide or, um, or like su suppress <laughs> your like, um, like your like true self. Like I feel like that was an experience that I've had in different dance communities, both in New Orleans and not. So like holding space for us to like show up as our full selves, both in terms of like our identity and in terms of like our like mental capacity and like emotional capacity where we're at right then and right there. We also talk a lot about the stories that we get to tell as queer people. It's like a joke. 
in the lesbian community about lesbian characters always die mm. in movies. <laughs> Last season on TV, or a couple seasons ago, there was this huge article that came out about just like all the lesbian characters that were dying on TV. Mm. Um, and so tragedy and death is something that we are allowed to function within mm. in our community. Um, and so we're thinking about how to trouble that, how to complicate that, how to add depth. Yeah. <laughs> that being uh, a lesbian isn't just about being sad and then you die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is reality, you know? So, like, it's important. Like, it's not like, you know, we don't exist in the, that world. It's also like... We also exist beyond that too, beyond those like, beyond those spaces, beyond those narratives. And there's like all of the narratives for like straight people, but very few um, provided for like queer and trans folks. That's so much more important and valuable for queer people, especially young queer people of color and like queer and trans people of color to like have a space that, you know, that you can actually belong. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I find myself like quoting different like moments of the play and I feel really cheesy. <laughs> um, but yeah, that just made me think so think of Bev's last song. <laughs> and I'm like, Indy, you're just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, lean into the cheese. Um, I feel like that's a whole nother thing, but I feel like it's like- That our show what? does, <laughs> leans into the cheese. <laughs> I mean, not in ways that I think are wrong, but in ways that are like, what is a queer aesthetic? And a yeah. queer aesthetic is sometimes like a camping of those things mm -hmm. and sometimes it's a being like yeah that really sappy love moment that like you see straight people do all the time mm -hmm. in romantic movies and like nobody gets down on them for it we're gonna do it exactly we're gonna make that totally sappy moment happen exactly. and we're gonna make it happen because like we need to see ourselves doing that mm -hmm. and it's not cheesy it's not it's not like queer love is cheesy and campy and like queer pain is like artistic mm -hmm. It's so screwy the way that I feel like sometimes it gets stated like that. Though. Exactly. Yeah, we deserve narratives that that are cheesy. We deserve to like have narratives that have us like living happily ever after. Narratives about just fucking living, actually, like it's really important. Yeah, narratives about living life where like queerness is not the central problem in the narrative. Mm. Like it's not always true in our work. But it makes it so that it's not always that. And thinking about how often we're reading stories where like, yes, other things happen to these characters, but it's mainly about how like it was terrible for them being queer. And like how trying to make a piece where like love happens and pickup happens and like there are other things happening in the space too. Like there's violence going on because of queerness. There's also racism in the spaces and like complicating and problematizing those spaces, but in a way that like doesn't myopically look at queerness as if like it doesn't intersect with other things. Mm -hmm. Part of what's been really important to me about this process is that we have viewed the people who are sharing their stories with us as part of our extended queer family and that has meant becoming part of each other's lives Ooh. 
we've talked with people who are experiencing homelessness as elders and helped to connect them with housing folks in and out of the hospital dealing with health issues and have become part of the care network that cooks meals and visits the hospital and writes love letters. Yeah, I think about um, what happens when you get older <laughs> and like maybe you don't have kids and maybe you didn't have like a stable job that has like retirement or um, or you didn't or you don't come from enough wealth or get cut off from your wealth because of who you are. Um, so you're like, you know, pushing 70 or in your 60s or 70s and you're experiencing like houselessness again or for the first time or you're experiencing like health stuff that um, it's preventing you from like, you know, being able to fully take care of yourself. Like I think about like who, you know, like how you find support. So that's why we like cultivate these, these relationships. And I think that's one of the special things too that has come out of these interviews is that like there's care that comes after that. There's relationships, there's check-ins, there's this person needs meals, this, this person needs their storage space cleaned out. Like we're gonna come together and do that. And are we perfect? No. But I don't know, I just I just feel like that's something that has come out of this that is like really important to me is like these like relationships that like we form with each other and like keep even like within ourselves. Ourselves, 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 ourselves. For me it's like it has provided like some sort of model of like, oh like there will be younger generations of people who can help pick up that slack who, yeah, like that you maybe meet randomly or maybe um, don't even know super duper well, but they're here to, to like support you, here to make sure you're like not starving <laughs> or like, you know, it's like that feels important. That feels like something that like we don't have like infrastructure for as like a whole, it's like a larger community of like what happens when we get older especially if we don't have children to take care of us and if we don't have like those type of like financial securities for the future. Our process is about consciously cultivating community mm. that spans generations and so can start to create I've been trying to figure out how to talk about this. It's like a safety net. We're like a net below the safety net because our community often is like falling through, particularly older lesbians who weren't able to get jobs that had retirement in the 70s and 80s. And so they're like needing some things from us now. And so when we're creating this like web of relationships, it's a web that can also catch people when they need something. People are like, are you going to open a dike bar? And we're like, oh, we want to talk theoretically about the work. Stop asking that. Right. <laughs> never going to open a dike bar. <laughs> like, I don't need a dike bar. <laughs> like, at all. Right, like, what is the space that our community actually needs? Exactly. So, what kind of spaces do our people need? That's a huge question yeah. <laughs> um, that I think has a lot of answers. For me, the needs that I feel like we're filling are a need uh, to tell our own stories, a need for creative space and self-authorship, and a need for social space, to be in space together, for infrastructural support, for economic opportunities, 
Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Bonnie. Can we have a dance party? Yes. For more information on Last Call and alleged lesbian activities, or to listen to our podcast, visit www.lastcallnola.org. Or find our podcast on iTunes. Creating Place is an audio exploration of placemaking. It's part of a larger project by Alternate Roots called Creating Place, the art of equitable community building, a multimedia collection of reflections on the history and current practices of creative placemaking in the U.S. South. For more on the project and on Alternate Roots, visit www.alternateroots.org. This episode of Creating Place was recorded by Bonnie Gable and Erin Riesel and edited by me, Free For All, with additional support from Hannah Pepper Cunningham. I also made the music. Funding for Creating Place, the art of equitable community building, comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, Our Town Program. This project was created in partnership with the New Orleans LGBT Center and Alternate Roots through an Alternate Roots Partners in Action grant and through a network of ensemble theaters Net 10 Exchange grant. Additional funding from the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation. Last Call is fiscally sponsored by the National Performance Network. Uh, love you, Free. I love you, Lane. And you know, dear listener, we love you too. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. We only have one message to leave you with, and that is, until next time, stay stay gay. gay. Yay. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Although how pretty the piece is is important. <laughs> and the piece is pretty. Mm-hmm. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really important part of this project and why I did this project and continue to work on this project is because of that. One of the reasons. It's really the money. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's really because I ask her to. <laughs> <laughs> I just do anything at these houses.